Let's pray our little prayer at the top of our sheet. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. For all of you that are listening on the internet right now, uh, a day late and a dollar short, um, uh, I'm going to uh, go into John 3.16 today, uh, but also you're going to miss out on some good stuff because I'll probably shut it off so that uh, you feel guilty about not coming. Um, well, uh, last week we talked about John 3, 1 through 15, and we talk, it's Nicodemus, who is a man of substance, a man of stature, uh, somebody very important in the life of Israel. Uh, we believe that maybe even Josephus, the great historian, turncoat, uh, <clears throat> probably mentioned him, if not his, certainly his son, who went on to great things. But not uh, that, you know, it's funny that, that John would, would relay the story about Nicodemus, uh, because on the one hand, Nicodemus is everything that every Jewish mother would want their sons to aspire to be, but on, or any mother, full stop. Uh, but also, um, he represents every man. Right? The same things that wake up Nicodemus in the middle of the night are the same things that wake up you and me in the middle of the night, even 2,000 years ago. Right. 2,000 years ago, Nicodemus is worried about his kids. Nicodemus is worried about his marriage. Nicodemus is worried about his kids' marriage. Nicodemus is worried about, uh, you know, even uh, people who have money worry about money. Uh, even people who uh, have a place in society uh, still get up in the morning and look at themselves in the mirror and every once in a while wish that they were somebody else. That's true across the board. And oftentimes, uh, that's funny because uh, I remember in high school, I would look at myself in the mirror and I would think, I wish I was more like so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, come to find out, uh, that guy did wish he was me, of course, but uh, <clears throat> he did wish uh, that he was somebody else, I found out later on. And so the grass is always greener. And yet, uh, at a very basic human level, um, we struggle over the same things. Nicodemus is no different, and he's like us. And Jesus tells him <coughs> excuse me, that the answer to your problems is that you have to be born again. And, of course, Nicodemus doesn't understand. He doesn't get it. Uh, and rightfully so, because uh, Nicodemus is taking everything at a very intellectual level. And if I said you have to be born again, who can blame Nicodemus for, for saying, wait a minute, that's physically impossible? Uh, I would not think that you were speaking spiritually if you said born again. Um, well, now I might, but this is remember, this is the first time these words have ever been uttered, <laughs> this born again language. And Nicodemus is rightfully confused, uh, but what Jesus says is that you don't understand because you haven't been born again. You don't understand because you haven't experienced the new birth. If you had, you'd know exactly what it is I'm talking about. And that is a new life. That things are different. Now Luther was right in saying that we were simul justus et peccator, which means that we're redeemed, we're justified, but we're also still sinful. Right? That it doesn't mean that after you become a Christian, you stop sinning. But things are different. 
If anything, this new birth actually raises your awareness of your sin. Uh, before you become a Christian, you know, I think I mentioned in the sermon, you just called it Saturday night. You know, you didn't think anything of it. It was, it was routine. Uh, and then all of a sudden you become a Christian and you think, maybe I ought to cut this out. But you also do find victory over certain sins and habits in your life, not through your own effort. There was a man named <clears throat> Levi Ives who was a lawyer in Williamsburg, Virginia back in the early 1800s. And he made an art out of cursing. Uh, and, you know, uh, back in the day, uh, and it's not so much anymore, but, you know, he was a bachelor, uh, even though he was getting around 30 years old and thought, well, you know, my mother keeps getting on me about going to church, so I'm going to go to church. And he would go to Bruton Parish Church there in Williamsburg and uh, didn't really get a lot out of it and uh, didn't think much of it. And uh, But one of the things he realized is he started hanging around churchy people that he needed to curb his language. And he tried, and he tried, and he tried, and you know what? It just got worse. He, you know, the more he thought about it, the more likely he was to bring it up in conversation with the last person you ought to be cussing in front of. Uh, but poor <clears throat> Levi Ives, he found that was the case. And, you know, he ran with lawyers who were at the time, uh, you know, Getting into, uh, there are some really juicy cases. If you're ever able to scan the records of Williamsburg, Virginia in the early 1800s, uh, I mean, OJ doesn't hold a candle to some of the stuff that was going on. And uh, until one day, an evangelist came through by the name of Devereux Jarrett. And uh, Levi Ives, being a lawyer, had heard he's a pretty good orator, so he went and listened to him. And Ives uh, was converted there on the spot. Um, and uh, uh, several months later, one of his colleagues said, you know, Ives, you know, you, you've, you've really buckled down. I've noticed that, that you haven't been cursing as much. And all of a sudden it dawned upon Ives that that moment of conversion, uh, he stopped trying and handed over to the Lord. And the Lord actually, without him even knowing it, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing, uh, found that he was, in fact, different. And, uh, and, you know, some people say that that might be a small thing, uh, but, if, you know, sin in our eyes tends to be a very big thing. You know, the verse that says, before you start pointing out the plank in your neighbor's eye, deal with the speck in your own. Uh, Jesus is not saying that your neighbor's sin uh, is, uh, or no, don't point out the speck in your neighbor's eye. I'm sorry. Don't point out the speck in your neighbor's eye without dealing with the plank in your own eye. Jesus is not saying that your sin is bigger than your neighbor's sin. He's talking about perspective. Has anyone ever had anything in their eye? Let's just say a speck of dust. What does that feel like to you? A plank. It feels like a boulder. And what Jesus is saying is that your sin ought to agitate your, you more than your neighbor's sin agitates you. Well, that's what happened with Levi. And so uh, even though it might have been just a little speck uh, removed from Levi Ives' life, um, he knew it was a plank because he felt it grinding into his life day after day. And Levi Ives would go on to become the first Episcopal bishop of North, North Carolina. So, uh, interesting story there. But uh, there is uh, something indeed new that happens in the life of the believer. And um, our lives are a testimony to that. Now, I do think that it's, it's often rightfully said that the church is, you know, people who say, I don't want to go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Well, 
Um, I think that that's true at one level. At another level, I don't think that it's true. What I would say is when you become a Christian, one of the things that happens is you become incredibly self-aware, which means uh, you could probably acknowledge that you're a hypocrite. Right? Uh, One of the greatest lines that I've ever heard about hypocrisy comes from Romans chapter 7 where St. Paul himself says, uh, the very thing that I want to do I find myself incapable of doing. And the very thing I do not want to do, I find myself doing. Well, there's a definition of hypocrisy, right? I'm doing what I ought not to do, and I find myself incapable of doing that which I ought to do. Uh, and St. Paul, like Levi Ives, cries out, who will rescue me from this body of death? Right? There's a sense that I know that I'm a hypocrite. That's why I'm here, because I need to be rescued. You know, I, I don't... Uh, I'm not here... Uh, you know, I, and I use the, you know, it's, it's overused, but the little phrase, um, the church is a hospital for sinners and not a country club for the righteous. And then somebody said, well, I always look at the Advent as a country club for sinners. Um, I thought it was kind of funny and clever. But, um, uh, but, but indeed, that's the case. But, you know, Jesus said, I've come to, you know, the, the sick are the only ones that are in need of a physician, not the well. If you think you're all right, are you going to go to the doctor? No, you're not. It's only when you know that you're sick, which is an indication that you've been born again, because that precedes your acknowledgement of needing rescue, uh, that you're going to go to the hospital. And so those who can actually say, look, I understand that, that I am this mix of uh, justified and, and, and sin, and, uh, and I know that I'm a mess, which is exactly why I'm here. And what I want you to know, uh, friend who says that the church is full of hypocrites, is that um, you're in need of the same rescue. You know, the difference is, is that uh, you, you're looking at the speck in my eye and you haven't realized just how agitating that plank is in your own. Uh, and, but, you know, a lot of those folks uh, would probably also tell you, you know, well, I'm spiritual or I still believe. I just, I, I really love Jesus, but I really dislike the church. A lot of people will say that. And that's that kind of type. And, um, and we'll talk about that down the road as we get more into John. Um, but in our day and age, uh, we have a lot of people who simply do not believe. They just don't believe anything. Uh, and a lot of academics have thrown their weight behind this, like Richard Dawkins, and um, there's a picture of him up somewhere around here uh, debating John Lennox. Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, who died recently of cancer, uh, another one. Uh, very bright, articulate guys who, uh, who say, look, there, there is no God. Uh, but that's not really new. Remember, uh, we read in the Old Testament that in Proverbs, the fool hath said in his heart that there is no God. So even in the ancient world, people would walk around and say, there is no God. But that was very difficult to find. Uh, and even in our day and age, in a survey done just a couple years ago of African Americans in America, uh, they found that 100% of African Americans surveyed believed in, a God, in God. Now, it might have... They might not have articulated Jesus Christ, but they couldn't find one African-American that didn't believe. Well, um, I'm sure that that they looked hard. They they, they would be able to to find one. And the ancient world was full of... uh, That was kind of what the ancient world was like, but in our day and age, since the Enlightenment, there's a great degree of skepticism. Now, one of the great stories, I think, that illustrates 
the difficulty in dealing with those people is a guy by the name of H.T. Ironside, who was a great preacher in Chicago. But for a time, he lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, he was walking home from uh, work one day, and he came upon a Salvation Army meeting in the middle of a square. There were about 40 of them there playing their big drums and tooting on their horns. And, uh, and as they were walking through, someone recognized them and said, Dr. Ironside, would you be willing to come and give your testimony? And Ironside said, yes, I'd love to. And Ironside uh, stood up and, and started testifying about this new birth, about how his life had been changed uh, by this real man, uh, Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, who really did uh, rise again from the grave. And at the end of uh, his testimony, uh, a card was slipped to him from a gentleman who was very well dressed on the uh, edge of the meeting. And on it, it said... Um, Dr. Ironside, I'm Mr. So-and-so, and, -so, and uh, he was one of the sort of premier uh, socialists in uh, America at the time on the cutting edge of that great, of that, not great, well, great, uh, depends on how you want to look at it, movement, and, uh, but he was also the head of the Agnostic and Atheism League in America, and he said to Ironside in this note, what do you think about a debate in this lecture hall this Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m., I'll pay for the whole thing. So Ironside walked up to him and said, okay, I'll do, he says, you know, I have something at 3 o'clock, but I, I think I can get there by 4, but, you know, if I can't, I'll get someone to sub in for me because I think this is important, but here's the condition. Here's, here's the deal. The deal is, is that I will engage you in debate if you can find one man, one man who has come to one of your meetings and has said, atheism has changed my life. Uh, this philosophy that you have, uh, have told me uh, has given me a whole new outlook where when I came in, I was distraught. Uh, I had all of these problems. And this is the antidote for what ails me. And now my life is different. He said, one man. And he said, also, he says, although I think this might be harder to find, uh, one woman who too feels like that her life has been changed uh, through the atheistic message that you've been preaching uh, and the philosophy that you've been dealing out uh, in your meetings that happen every week. And he said, if you do that, I will bring 100 men and women whose lives have been changed by Jesus Christ, who once were lost but now are found, who are new creations. And he turned to the captain of the Salvation Army and said, Captain, how many people do you have here tonight who could do that? And the captain said, 40. And he says, well, I'm sure that we can easily find 60 elsewhere. Uh, and with that, uh, the gentleman who was the head of the Atheist and Agnostic League didn't say anything but sort of dismissively waved his hand as nothing to it uh, and turned around uh, and walked away. Uh, why? Because he couldn't find one. He couldn't find a man. He couldn't find a woman whose life had been changed by nothing. Uh, and yet, uh, the world over, uh, it wouldn't have been anything for Ironside to find 100 men and women, even in San Francisco, uh, who could testify to the fact that Jesus Christ changed their life and that he was real and that they were different. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about 
life to the full. He's talking about a different life, not without its struggles. And I think that a lot of times people in the church uh, paint Christianity as a life of sunshine and lollipops, uh, and it's not. Uh, you know, uh, Jesus said, look, if they didn't like me, they really aren't going to like you. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, this world has its troubles, uh, and we're subject to the same troubles that, you know, uh, again, the things that wake you up in the middle of the night, uh, not everybody, you know, no Christian is immune to, um, to that guy, um, but uh, no Christian is immune uh, to those issues and struggles uh, in, in life, and yet your struggle is different because you have one who does have the victory. And you know who holds the future. Uh, you know who calms the waves in the midst of the storm. Uh, you know the one who has the power to save, whose arm is never too short to save. Right? You have an advocate. I mean, sometimes in life, don't you just sit there and wish that you... You know, I don't know about you, but there have been a, several times in my life where I just wish that I had somebody who was greater than me, outside of me, who was willing to go to bat for me. I mean, is there any... I mean, I just feel helpless. You, know, I, I can't, you can't fight City Hall. I, went, I tried to go to the courthouse twice yesterday to get my cars registered and sent away twice, packing. Um, uh, and then they said, well, the state trooper has to inspect your cars. And, I, and they said, are they nearby? And I said, you do notice I'm one man incapable of driving two cars. Uh, and they said, well, you, they have to be close. And I thought, it makes you want to run for public office, but then it doesn't. There you go. Oh my I got Lord! There at eight and, I left at and you know what? There were Christians and non-Christians in the line, <laughs> uh, and and uh, everybody was just as mad. And your faith really didn't dictate uh, whether or not you were mad, because that's the way that life is. But what you realize is that Christianity gives you perspective, a new outlook on life, where it's different. You know that uh, your life and your disposition is not determined by circumstance. One more thing. Well, we don't know when they'll come back. They did come back. It, you know, <laughs> it tests you. It only gets darkest just before it goes pitch black. Uh, but um, you know that your your outlook changes your because you realize that your life is not determined by circumstance and everybody else in the world. And But again, we as Christians, we have a hard time not letting our lives be determined by circumstance. And, um, and that doesn't mean that as a Christian you become um, a stoic, right, where you think, well, I'm just going to let this roll off my back. When you experience tragedy in your life, when you experience difficulty, it gets you down and it's real. It's real, uh, and you struggle with that, but you struggle with it in a different way because you know who is in control. Right? You, you know uh, that, that Jesus is in the midst of that pain uh, and in that sorrow and is there, uh, and you're not alone. I mean, there's no worse feeling than struggling with, with pain and difficulty uh, by yourself. And, of course, we have friends and we have family uh, that are there with us along, but um, you know what I mean? they're fallible too. And uh, I would imagine that a lot of y'all sitting in this room, and y'all are the ones in the family that are supposed to be strong. Y'all are the ones that everybody goes to, uh, to lean on in, in those times. Uh, and yet, uh, inside, all of us say, you know what, uh, I need somebody to lean on. 
Uh, I need some. I need a rock in which uh, to rest my life, uh, so that when the storms come, uh, as my daughter says, the house on the rock stands firm. Um, and um, and that is what is um, so profound about Christianity. And all of that happens uh, because of God's great love for us. Uh, Karl Barth, yeah, I went to hear uh, Wendell Berry a couple weeks ago at Samford. I think I told you that. And um, I think it was um, Diane Sawyer. You know, Diane Sawyer was a beauty queen before she went into broadcasting. A very bright, articulate lady. And, um, and she was asked to reflect back on her career as, as sort of a beauty queen and you know, they do the interviews and all that stuff. And she said, well, the one thing that I learned was nothing sounds more ignorant than an adolescent trying to sound intelligent. <laughs> and, uh, and that's a real uh, judgment. But then while I was at Wendell Berry, just hearing some of these people, and they weren't adolescents. Some of them were out of adolescent, adolescence. Um, you know, really, they were asking a question, but they really weren't asking a question. You know, they just wanted to express their thoughts and ideas in the form of a question. And this one guy kind of went on and on and on about, you know, the intricacies of creative writing and this and that and the other. And, and you know, how do you do it, Mr. Barry? And Wendell Barry just said, well, good grief, if it was that hard, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> um, well, uh, you know, it... People uh, can try to complicate things, and I think that that happens a lot in Christianity, especially when it comes to God's message to us through the Scriptures. And when Karl Barth was lecturing in America, he was at Harvard, and this you know American Harvard student got up and they said, uh, asked a very American question, uh, Herr Barth, what is the greatest thought from the Bible that has ever crossed your mind? And with uh, childlike simplicity, Bart, without missing a beat, said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. He said that in English or German? He said it in English. He could speak English. Would you want me to, do you want me to say it in German for you? It doesn't, sa it doesn't sound as pleasant. Uh, <coughs> German is not a romantic language. Uh, lowercase r. But... Um, that very simple message of love, which a lot of people think is just overly simplified, and, and, and we hear it um, a lot. I mean, there, I think that there, you know, and when we talk about how great God's love is, you know, even, it's hard to even put into terms and use vocabulary to describe it, because, uh, you know, someone will ask me, how did the Bible study go this morning? And I'll say, great. Well, how was, uh, how was lunch today? Oh, I had the chicken with wild rice soup. It was great. Um, you know, uh, how was your experience at the courthouse? Oh, it was great. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we use great to describe um, things that, that really maybe are not that great. And I mean, not to mention love. I love cheeseburgers. I love my wife. Now, you hope I love my wife a whole lot more than I love Jesus. But we don't have words. We have one word, love. Uh, we have one word, great. And so when we say that God's love is great toward us, I don't know. I mean, I think that most people on the street just say, yeah, it is. I know that God, God loves me. Uh, but do they really understand how much uh, God 
loves them. Uh, one of the, the big stories, I think, um, that illustrates this, and I'm not going to get into it uh, because it's a, I could do a year on this one parable, which is the parable of the prodigal son. And, um, you know, you look at the parable of the prodigal son, and you remember... Uh, the youngest son comes up to his father and says, uh, Father, I wish you were dead. Uh, I want what is coming to me when you die right now. Which really does mean, you know, I'd rather you be dead right now so that I can cash in on it. And he takes that money and he goes off to Seattle or Vegas or someplace like that. And, uh, and he squanders it. Right? He squanders it. And he's sitting there slopping some pigs and uh, looks at the, the pig slop and thinks, golly, these pigs have got it better than me. But you know who else has it better than me are my father's servants. And so what I'll do is I'll prepare this penitential speech uh, and I'll go back to dad and, uh, and I'll just look, you know, uh, let's manage expectations. Let's just, let's, I'll be a servant. I'll be a servant. Meanwhile, older brother is dutifully serving the father, managing the estate, doing all that he's supposed to do. And um, every day, dad walks out on the porch and looks down the long, dusty road just to see if anybody's there. And, you know, he's probably had a couple false starts, somebody walking up the road, and dad has taken a couple steps down the porch and began to run. And um, it turns out it's not his son, just some guy traveling through. Until one day he looks and he recognizes the silhouette and he runs full on. Now, uh, in the ancient world, men didn't run. If you ran, um, somebody was chasing you uh, or the house was on fire. You never ran. If you were late, you didn't run. Why? Because that meant that you thought that the person that you were meeting was more important than you were. And if you were late, there was a good reason. And so you walked. You didn't run for anything or anyone. Uh, it was humiliating. It was humiliating. And yet, in front of all of his servants and his son, Dad is running. And you know, word is spread like wildfire. The master's running. He's running. I mean, and jogging. I mean, we didn't invent jogging until 1983. But that wasn't going on. And um, he runs, and he embraces the son. And, and one of the funniest moments of the Bible, you know, the son is giving this speech. Well, the father's talking and ordering the servants to do all these other things, and he's embracing. He's not hearing a word the son is saying. Not a word. And the brother's just looking on. Now, uh, uh, or is hearing about what's going on. He's not there at this point. So when they throw the big party, the son comes up and, and doesn't want to come into the party uh, and has this confrontation with his father. And, um, and his father says, look, you've always been here for me. All that I have is yours. Now, uh, that's true, but it's kind of not true because you know what happens is when the youngest son is reinstated into the family, remember he got his portion of the inheritance before, and so the estate is reduced. And before, he'd be entitled to about a quarter of the inheritance. So let's just say that they broke even along the way and the estate was only worth 75% of what it was before the youngest son left. Well, do you know what happens? When the youngest son is reinstated, he's eligible for another 25%. You see why the older brother's a little upset? Because now, I mean, he's taking a, a big debt, which means, uh, in essence, uh, he's just got half of the estate. When, when the father dies, he'll inherit a 25% of what it is at that point. Um, now, um, 
we call it the parable of the prodigal son, but prodigal means to lose or to give up everything. Who in the story has actually lost and given up everything? The father. The father is the real prodigal. He's the one that has given up everything, and not just for the youngest son, but for the oldest son. And, um, and yet, um, and he does it out of love, and yet um, the oldest son doesn't see it that way, because he sees his inheritance as something uh, that is earned. And he even sees his father's love toward him as, you know, Dad, I have worked really, really hard in order to get my inheritance. You can't work for an inheritance. I mean, I, you know, I guess somebody could make the argument that, you know, if, if you don't mind your P's and Q's, you could be disinherited. But um, the nature of this father is what? That ain't going to happen. <laughs> I mean, you can't get disinherited by this guy. I mean, when you deserve to be disinherited, what does he do? He gives you the inheritance early. So there's no jeopardy of that happening with this, with this dad. And yet, he thinks, look, I've served you my whole life, and, um, and I deserve it. I've never once said to you, I wish that you were dead. I've been dutiful. I've stuck it out. And the father says what? Come into the party and celebrate. Your brother who once was lost, now was found, was dead, but now is alive. Come and join in the celebration. Come and join in the celebration. And, um, and he doesn't want to go in. He doesn't want to go in. Um, and, of course, immediately all the Pharisees were, and scribes were upset because Jesus knew that, that he was talking about uh, them. Um, now, it's funny because... Um, in our day and age, most people um, identify themselves with, uh, I think most church people would identify themselves with the older brother. I mean, I certainly would. I'm an older brother, uh, and I certainly would. Um, but this was not a, an offensive story, although it, it ticked a lot of folks off, uh, to the people who were around Jesus who followed him regularly, who were referred to as sinners and tax collectors. Right? Because they knew the truth of things. Right? When he said, and you went away and you squandered everything you had and you wished that you had better than pigs, and they're all saying, been there, done that. And then they hear of this gracious love that the Father has offered the Son, and they look at Jesus saying, that's what's been given to us. And so they're, they're in tears because they realize that this is, this is true of them. And yet... Uh, they're not, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are not only mad because Jesus has talked about them being shut out of the party, but they're mad for the same reason the older brother is mad, because they're looking at the younger son and looking at these people who are sinners and tax collectors and saying, how dare he say that they get into the party? How dare he say that they are inheritors? How dare that they be loved in the same way that we deserve to be loved? Well, golly, if somebody loves you because you deserve it, that's not really love, is it? Right. There comes a point in everybody's relationship, and uh, you know you might have to think back a little bit. I don't know. Maybe you had a hot date last weekend, uh, but you know when you're dating somebody early on in those courting stages, uh, you know uh, guys are opening up doors and, and holding out chairs, and uh, even guys will look in the mirror and think, "Did I wear this last time?" Or how do I look? Do you think that she might... I'm giving you all real insight here. Uh, I'm giving, all my cards are on the table because, you know, uh, I'm, I'm done dating. But, um, 
you know, even guys think, you know, how do I look? And, you know, we even start messing with our hair. And, uh, and you know, that goes on for about two months. And then you think, oh, good grief. I'm going to have to be myself at some point, And that's scary. Right. Uh, that's scary because up till now, the person has seen all, of the, be- all the best you have to offer. Your A game has been put forward. And, uh, and really, when we all put our best foot forward, what's, what's there not to love? Right? Uh, but real love doesn't love somebody because of their A game and their best attributes. Real love sees the bad stuff. Right, there's going to come a point in time where you have to reveal your true self. Well, actually, not even reveal. It's going to happen. Your real self is going to come out in the dating relationship. And if they see you at, their, at your absolute worst, one of two things is going to happen. They're going to say, goodbye. <laughs> uh, it's been real great. Uh, or they're going to love you. And if that happens, you normally get married. That's normally what happens uh, because you have found somebody that has seen you at your worst and knows you as you really are, and they haven't turned tail. They've seen you broken, looking at the pods in the pig pen, uh, just you, and they say, I love you. Uh, one of the worst moments in my dating relationship with Lauren, it was the weekend that we'd gone to visit her parents. We were dating, and I'd asked her father permission to marry her, and uh, she didn't know this. Uh, she knew that it was happening. Uh, she knew I was, we wanted to get married, but she didn't know that I'd asked her father this weekend. So we're getting back on the airplane to fly back to Washington, uh, D.C., where I was for the summer. And, um, you know, I was... I looked like a government mule. I had bags all over me because Lauren said, well, if we check them, you know, they may not get there, and I don't want to deal with all that, you know, this and that and the other. So I have all these bags over me, and then she decided she was hungry, so we went to a Wolfgang Puck restaurant, and I think I paid $12 for a ham sandwich, and so I was furious about that. So she's munching on this ham sandwich behind me, and we're getting on the plane, and we're on the plane, and she goes, did you get that thing back at my parents' house? And I just lost. And I just turned around and I looked at her, and I said, I'm not afraid of you anymore. <laughs> and um, now, how she received that and what I meant were two different things. Because you know what? What I doubt. What I really meant was, I realized that this is the woman I'm going to spend the rest of my life with, and I wasn't afraid of getting into a fight with her. I wasn't afraid that she could do something that would make me change my mind. You understand what I'm saying? That that there's nothing that I could do that would or nothing that she could do at that point. Well, I mean, there's probably would, but, but I mean, that even in the midst of that, where any other guy would probably be like, as soon as we touch down, goodbye. <laughs> and I am, I'm, and she wasn't being rude. It was just sort of a, it was a lot of stress. Uh, but the point being, um, uh, I realized that our relationship was solid enough that it could withstand something like that. And, if you're at that place that you can be yourself and know uh, that the other party is going to love you and not turn tail and run, and you don't have to constantly appease them. You don't have to constantly say, okay, well, uh, you know, I heard one person talk about it this way. They said that life in general, but relationships specifically, are like a bank where you have to, you know, you make withdrawals from the bank, but you also need to make emotional deposits in the bank. And so little things like, um, you know, if you go away with your buddies on a fishing trip in the weekend, you know, maybe the next weekend you weed the flower bed. 
Uh, well, let me tell you what that is. That's tit for tat, and you are going to be doomed uh, because at the end of the day, you're going to come up wanting. You're still going to, no matter how hard you try, uh, you're, you're never going to be able to keep things even in a relationship. And love isn't about that. I don't love you because you weeded the flower bed. And I don't unlove you because you went on a fishing trip with the guys. Uh, I love you uh, full stop. I just love you. There is no but in love. And even though at this point I'm just kind of talking about human relationships, uh, God's love, where our love is shakable, is unshakable. It's infinite. Uh, it, it, it's unassailable. And uh, St. Paul talks a lot uh, about this in Ephesians chapter 3, where he writes... Sorry, I'm using my little Bible, so it's Ephesians is like two pages in this Bible. 3.18 and 19. Many have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That God's love for you is so big that you can't even comprehend it. Just when you think that you've been able to sort of grasp how great God's love for you is, it's even bigger than that. We ask our little daughter, Lily, how much does mom and daddy love you? And she stretches her arms out and says, this much. Right? Um, you can never stretch it. I mean, you could join every arm in the world hand in hand and stretch out. And that's not uh, going to come even close to God's infinite infinite love for you, which means that it has no end. That there's nothing that you can do that will make God unlove you if you are in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you can do to make God unlove, for, unlove you. And God's love, you know, a lot of people say, well, God has a predisposition predisp to love this group or that group. Let me tell you, God as a God has a bias towards sinners. Right. Now, it's easy to say that because um, that's all of us. Uh, but God's love is a bias. And you see that in, in his ministry. Right? His ministry was uh, to those uh, who knew that they were lost. Now, uh, the ones who thought that they had their acts together, uh, they didn't really care whether Jesus loved them or not, did they? They didn't feel like they needed it. That they felt like they were okay. Why? They tried to feel secure in their ability to earn God's favor and to earn God's love. And that, again, people don't change for 2,000 years. That's not a Pharisaical problem. It's not a Sadducee problem. It's not a scribe problem. Uh, it's a human problem uh, that not only plays itself out in human relationships, but in relationships with God. It's like the Dennis, Menace, Dennis the Menace cartoon where Dennis is kneeling next to his bed and says, Dear God, I've been pretty good. Well, maybe not Christmas good, but pretty good. Um, this idea, well, you know, if I am just good and Joey eats his carrots, then... Um, then we'll be all right with God. When God is not interested uh, so much in your behavior, because remember our buddy Levi Ives, he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begins to work through you. What he's interested in is the root of the problem, and what he wants most of all is our heart. 
Right? He wants to be in a relationship. Uh, he wants uh, to change our lives uh, in a way so that we can be comfortable in Him. And if you have that relationship with God where you know God loves you in an infinite manner and that He loves you in spite of all your warts and flaws, your sin uh, on a bigger level, um, that not only changes you, uh, and changes your relationship with God, it changes your relationships with other people. Right? You'll parent differently because of this. Uh, you'll, you'll love your spouse differently because of this. Uh, you'll love your friends differently uh, because of this. And all of a sudden, words like obligation or you owe me or uh, action consequence love, which is, um, I will love you so long as you do this. Right. Uh, and let me tell you, this is really hard to do with children. Like, if you want to, if you've forgotten, uh, come over to my house. Um, and, you know, it's hard not to say to a two or three year old, uh, if you want this prize, finish your peas. Now, at some level, you can do that with peas, right? Lily is not going to end up on the psychiatrist's couch when she's 40 years old saying, my parents made me eat my peas. Uh, that's not going to happen. Um, but uh, there are areas in which, in which we do this, uh, especially, um, you know, I've seen it happen with people in academics. There's this funny little cartoon going on, uh, a, a long cartoon you watch, not like a Dennis the Menace cartoon in print. Um, and... Uh, it's about uh, a day in the life of a financial planner, and Lauren's a financial planner for Merrill Lynch. And, um, and in it, it says, uh, it's this funny little thing, and this lady wants to retire when she's 50, and she's 45, and, um, and of course has no money to retire, and, and says this very funny thing. She said, uh, well, uh, I have a son who's about to go off to college. Where is he going to college? Boston College. Uh, but he's very, well, how are you going to pay for this? Well, he's very, very smart. Uh, he has a B-plus average, and we're hoping he gets a scholarship. And the financial planner says, uh, with a B-plus average, he won't get into Boston College, much less get a scholarship. Um, and uh, it's just not going to happen. But uh, I, I notice that there's tremendous pressure, and rightfully so. We want all of our children to go uh, to the right schools and, and to excel in life. Um, I went to some good schools, but... Um, but that is not the end-all, uh, be-all of life. And um, Now, it's one thing if you've got a, a child who says, well, I just don't care. <laughs> but if you have a child who is you know, getting tutored and, and doing their darndest and they're pulling out a B-plus average, you know, why would you ever want to hold in front of them, you know what, you need to really apply to Harvard. You need to apply to print. I mean, that would crush them, wouldn't it? It would crush them. But you love them where they are, and, um, and you let them know that, look, my love for you uh, is not rooted in your accomplishments. I'm going to love you whether you get into uh, Harvard or someplace else. Like, th that's not the measure of you. That's not who you are. Um, you're, 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 that's not the, you're, you know, who you are is not the sum of your deeds. Um, and um, that is tough uh, for the world to see. And I know that there's a lot of fear out there, especially for my generation and younger, uh, because I guess what they're saying is that we won't enjoy sort of the wealth and American dream that previous generations have been able to, to live out. And uh, speaking on behalf of 
myself and maybe my that's fine. Like where my grandparents are totally flipping out. You know, they're like, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's really, <laughs> it's really okay. It's okay that, uh, you know, um, that we're going to, we'll have to live with 500 fewer square feet, I guess. You know, I mean, it's, it's really not the end of the world. Uh, but so many people uh, do that. And, but at the end of the day, when you're lying there de- dying, um, you know, nobody ever says, I wish I'd gone to the office one more day. You know, I really wish that you'd gotten into this school. Uh, I really wish that you'd done this or done that. Uh, but uh, even uh, the non-Christian, when they're sitting there on their deathbed, uh, they want to be around their family and friends, and uh, they don't sit around and air old grievances. But what? It's marked totally by love. And all of a sudden, all those awful things are normally forgotten. Uh, but sometimes they're not, and some people just don't show up around the deathbed because there is a lot of... Uh, water over the dam. But God doesn't see us that way. God is not uh, the sort of mean dean uh, who sits up in heaven and says, if you do this, then I will love you. But he simply says, I love you. And that love is simply one way. And And this is what makes us uncomfortable as human beings. We can't reciprocate it. There's no way that we could possibly reciprocate it. Why? Because our love is conditional and fickle, isn't it? Right? It just is. Even to the ones that we love most of all. I have never uh, said, you know, no one can make me feel as wonderful and as valued as my spouse. And no one can make me feel as small and crushed as my spouse. Right? You know exactly what to say to the people who are closest in your life to bring them high and to bring them low. And, uh, you know, you'll find yourself, you know, in those arguments with them where you're sitting there and, you know, the argument is brewing. You know, they've said something to bait you. And, you know, you see the, the storms on the horizon gathering. And you say, as long as I don't say this one thing, we'll be able to get through this. And then all of a sudden you're like, get back in there. You know, you, you, it's out of your mouth before it, your brain can know what's going on. And, and you've said it. Why? Well, because uh, that's who we are as human beings. And um, now your relationship will withstand that, uh, I hope, if it's marked by a deep and abiding love for one another. Uh, but uh, Paul says it, that while we were yet sinners, in Romans uh, 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The godly died for the ungodly. So when God was loving us more than he ever has in the history of the world on Good Friday, we were hating him more than we ever have in the history of the world. Jesus says it. Look, it's, you know, greater love love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now, um, most of us probably would lay our life down, as Jesus said, for a friend, for a spouse, certainly for a child. But for an enemy? Somebody that, that, that you know hates you? Someone who you know wouldn't do the same thing? In fact, not only would you not lay your life, you know they're trying to kill you. They want you to die. They, they want to kill you. On that day, you know, one of the striking things, you're going to hear me preach about this on Palm Sunday, um, you know, when they hauled, hauled Jesus and Barabbas uh, before the crowds, um, 
This is, this is the same crowd that said, you know, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed he who comes in the... I mean, they were palm branches, coats down there. These are the same people. And not one person, you know, when they said, who shall I release? In one united voice, Barabbas. Nobody picked Jesus. Nobody. Knowing that it would lead to his death. All right? And these are not... Um, you know, it's easy for us to say, well, they're, they're bad people. They're just bad people. But I hope that you see. Like, I mean, we're all in the same boat. Um, I think one of the most terrifying things about uh, World War II, uh, and especially in Germany, um, certainly is the Holocaust. You know, millions of Jews exterminated. Awful. Terrible. But maybe even more terrifying than that, um, an entire nation, for the most part, with exceptions, um, let it happen. Simply let it happen. And, um, and these, were not, you know, these were not sort of high-ranking officials in the SS. These were moms and dads, people like you and me, um, who probably had, you know, they said, well, I just don't want to cause trouble or, or whatever it might have been. But um, an entire nation, uh, for the most part, again, with few exceptions like Bonhoeffer and, and some of the old German nobility, um, with the Valkyrie um, uprising, um, kind of went along. Uh, and, and I think that there's a real spiritual dimension to that and a lot of evil, uh, demonic stuff going on there. But um, that's really frightening. Um, but, you know, it was moms and dads who were standing in the crowd that day when Barabbas and Jesus were brought before them. And... Um, and he was handed over. He was scourged. And if you go to Jerusalem to this day, uh, <clears throat> in the Antonian Fortress underneath, next to the Temple Mount, there is, uh, it's, it's, you know, most of the places that you go to in the Holy Land are there, but, you know, you really don't, when you look around, it's different from what Jesus would have seen. Primarily because there's a church over top of it. Uh, but one of the few places that you can go, which really looks almost exactly like it, is underneath the fortress, where on the ground, where Jesus was scourged on this pavement, um, it's underground now because the city's of course been built up, there is a circle with pie pieces, and each pie piece has a little, um, you know, a little graphic, a little image on it, and one of those is a crown. And what the Roman soldiers would do is they'd cast lots on this pie thing, and if it would land on the crown, they would play the game of the king with their, with their captive. And of course, that's the very game that fell upon Jesus. Uh, and so they crowned him, they covered him in purple cloth, uh, they scourged him, they mocked him, they spat upon him, and then they marched him up the hill to Calvary uh, with a cross. Um, he was beaten within an inch of his life, so much so that, of course, Simon had to help him carry the cross. While his two little boys looked on wondering, what's going to happen to my dad? Uh, he walked all the way up the hill, they nailed him to the cross, uh, and he hung there, uh, continually mocked, uh, While well, the soldiers below cast lots for his clothes, uh, they spat upon him, they uh, jeered at him, uh, and he looked down at them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That doesn't happen in our world. Remember, if you're the son of... Call down legions, you can do it. Call down legions of angels. Save yourself, save us. Okay. Why, you know, you have the ability to uh, wipe these folks out. Uh, why won't you do that? Uh, love. Uh, love for the unlovable. Uh, 
love uh, for you uh, and for me. And um, and even though, uh, you know, for years uh, people will try to debate uh, what was it that, um, who was it that killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? Uh, was it the Jews? Um, you know, people will always look for a political answer, uh, but it's a spiritual question. Uh, our sins killed Jesus. Uh, we killed Jesus. Uh, he died uh, that we might live. He died that we might live. And we didn't deserve it. Right? Paul writes, for the wages of sin is death. That which we've earned at the end of the day, uh, when we go to collect what we deserve, is death. But God uh, gives us a gift. And of course, what a gift is, is something that's unconditional. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. When someone gives you something as a gift, uh, that's what it is. Right? It's, you haven't earned it. Now, I've talked to you about the funny thing that happens around Christmas where you end up buying gifts for people, uh, not because you love them, but because you know they're going to get you a gift. And uh, (laughs) I mean, there's no worse feeling in the world than someone giving you a gift and you not having anything to give in return. So if you're a good Christian like me, you lie and say, yours is on back order, or I forgot yours at home, uh, whatever it might be, and uh, and then you go home and you re-gift. So... uh, But here God has given a gift that there's nothing that you can give in return. And if you you give something expecting something in return, that's not a gift. That's not a gift. But God has given a gift. So a gift is something without any expectation of reciprocation. But a gift is also something that can't be earned. Now here's the wonderful thing about a gift. If you didn't earn it, you can't unearn it. If you didn't earn it in the first place, there's nothing you can do to unearn it. It's yours. It's a gift that has been given to you. There's not, you know, it's not one of those things where, um, you know, I've decided to take back my gift. Well, if that happens, then it wasn't a gift. Uh, it was given with some sort of expectation. We had an incident like this in the house recently, and it was really hard. Um, that a gift was given to Lily, and she really loves this thing. It's a little Etch-a-Sketch thing. And this even happened before the Mitt Romney thing. Um, so we have this Etch-a-Sketch thing, and, um, and Lily really loves it. And she was just being terrible. And, of course, my initial response was, take the Etch-a-Sketch away, because she loves it so much, and tell her until she behaves, she can't have it. Um, but then I stopped myself because I realized... I gave this child a gift. And if I do that, then it's not a gift. What it is, is it's leverage. <laughs> uh, it's a tool to try to modify her behavior. But what you find in the gospel, which is this wonderful gift that has been given, that because God loved us so much, this infinite love, and it's been given to us without being earned, it's unconditional, there's nothing that we can do to unearn it, it changes our hearts. When God loves you or somebody loves you in that way without any expectation of return, but simply says, I know that you hate my guts, but I love you, and I'm going to give you a gift that is going to change your life forever. Your heart melts until it is gone, and God gives you a new heart, and it's a heart that can't help but love him. It's a heart that can't help but love him. And when you think upon what God has done for you and for me through Jesus Christ on the cross, uh, how can you not help but be overwhelmed by what God has done?
And not just because of the image of Jesus dying on the cross, but because of our new life. That we are different because of what has happened. Like the, the crucifixion and Good Friday and Easter is, is the beginning of this new life. It doesn't ha- you know, it's not that when you die, all of a sudden you get eternal life. It begins now. Your life has changed now. Now, um, uh, of course, per the usual, I didn't finish. Um, but um, I hope that we're able to grasp uh, how great God's love for us. And we're going to get, uh, we're going to continue this with uh, Roman numeral four uh, next week. If you have questions, comments, and concerns, because we're here at the end and we don't have time, feel free to email me. Um, and um, I will see you next week, which is, um, what is next week? The... Oh, yes. We are not meeting on Good Friday. Okay, we're not going to meet on Good Friday, and nor will we meet on April the 13th, which is the spring coffee with uh, Denise George, and Elizabeth Sharman has invites in case you didn't get one by mail. But let's pray very quickly. Lord Jesus, for your word and for your great love for us, we give you thanks that our hearts would be overwhelmed for it, that you would give us hearts to love and serve you in spite of the fact that we easily want to love and serve ourselves. Lord, we thank you for loving us so much that you did not take into consideration how much we didn't love you. And so, Lord, continue to transform us and make us more and more men and women after your own heart. For Jesus' sake, amen.